Hi, this is RJ Lozada. You're about to hear our special Fallen Heroes episode about people who've died in 2017 after a lifetime of helping others in their communities. If you want to make a difference, make a donation to Making Contact by going to our website, radioproject.org. Your gift will help us to keep broadcasting the voices of those who are changing the world for the better. Please make your donation now while you're thinking about it. Radioproject.org. You know, I feel so sorry for Willie. I hate to see any baseball player having troubles, because that's a great sport for my people. That is the only sport in the world where a Negro can shake a stick at a white man and won't start no ride. <laughs> And you heard what Bobby Kennedy said about eight weeks ago. He said, 30 years from this year, Negro can become president. So treat me right, or I'll get in there and raise taxes on you. <laughs> I mean, now don't get me wrong, I wouldn't mind paying my income tax if I knew it was going to a friendly country. <laughs> that was comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory in his first ever national TV appearance on ABC back in 1961. Gregory passed away this year, leaving more than half a century of art and cutting commentary as his legacy. But he's only one of thousands of activists, organizers, and local social justice leaders who died in 2017. Many of them didn't make the headlines. I'm Andrew Stelzer. This week on Making Contact, as we do every December, we bring you some of the voices and stories of the year's fallen heroes. I'm Jackie Cabasso. I'm the executive director of Western States Legal Foundation, a 35-year-old nuclear disarmament advocacy group. Uh, Sumitero Taniguchi was a survivor of the U.S. atomic bombing of Nagasaki. He was 16 years old when, and about a mile away from the hypocenter of the atomic bomb, he was actually a mailman. Suddenly from behind me there came a rainbow of light, and I was blown over and crushed into the road by the ferocious force of the blast. When at length I attempted to stand, I discovered that the skin on my left arm was hanging loose like a dirty rag from my shoulder right down to my fingers. I touched my back and found that my clothes were no longer there, and my skin came away slimy on my hands. He was injured very, very severely. His back was essentially burned off, and he spent two or three years in the hospital on his stomach. Even today, you can still see my heart beating between my ribs because it's as though my chest has been scooped out. I have been told that my lung capacity is almost half that of a healthy person. Taniguchi became, was a founder of Hidankyo, which was the movement of atomic bomb survivors who have become known around the world for their plea that what happened to us is so terrible it, could never, it can never be allowed to happen again and that nuclear weapons and human beings are not compatible. Uh, photographs of his burned back, bright red burned back, um, became kind of iconic. Yeah. 
nuclear weapons are cruel and inhumane. There is overwhelming international support for their abolition. I pledge before all those who desire peace to inherit the wishes of all my companions who have passed away over the past 70 years, and that as a living witness of war and the atomic bomb, that I will continue to convey the truth of the atomic bombing throughout the world for as long as I live, so that we may realize a peaceful world without war or nuclear weapons. He and the other survivors who have gone public with their stories actually literally gave their lives for the elimination of nuclear weapons because every time they tell those stories, they have to relive the unbearable experience of, of hell on earth. So it was impossible to see him, talk to him, interact with him, and not be aware of the devastating effects of the atomic bomb that he had survived and that he devoted his life to uh, working to eliminate so that it would never happen to anybody else. My name is Yvette Raphael and I live in South Africa, Johannesburg. I work for the advocacy for HIV AIDS prevention. I knew Prudence Nobantu Mabele for a long, long time. I think why I connected to Prudence so well was because she was just the girl next door like many of us at the time who were living with HIV. The AIDS message will start with us but it can't stay with us alone. It has to spread out to the community and it must always be a non-judgmental one. Uh, for instance, we cannot say uh, to certain people, uh, because you are injecting the drugs, therefore you, you must be jailed. You cannot say a sex worker need a job some people would tell you straight that it's my choice. We must look at the conditions and start accepting people for uh, who and how they are. For Prudence, most her important work was around women living with HIV. Her important work was her passion for fighting for women who were vulnerable to gender-based violence, violence against women. All her campaigns were rounded, so you would not talk women living with HIV without talking about the intersectionality of gender-based violence, without talking about how young women are mainly and mostly affected by HIV. One of my tasks is to advocate and make sure that the issues are on the table when it comes to sexual and reproductive health and family planning. Women living the HIV have been falsely sterilized by many government institutions. They are removing their wombs or they are doing anything like that. My issues are they have the rights uh, to their full sexual and reproductive health. They have their rights to even family planning and they should be able to 
be given that opportunity. Most of the time, women were not invited to the table when discussions around people living with HIV were made. So I remember how Prudence fought, not for only a place at the table in some of those meetings, especially in, in the initial stages of the South African National AIDS Council, but she fought for positive women to be part of the discussions, to be part of the decision-making, to be part of the narrative of where we are today. Prudence did not shy away from the fact that she was living with HIV and that she did not choose to be living with HIV and she was fearless in the fact that she got infected by this disease because she was a woman. It's controllable. So my commitment is to truly work with the younger women to make sure that this doesn't repeat itself again. She just would not mind being the face of the most vulnerable, the face of HIV, the face of the poor, the face of women living with HIV, the face of gender-based violence, because she did not see herself as an extraordinary person. You are not safe as a woman in South Africa. Anything can happen to you. I have a grandmother every Sunday. I, I don't go to church. I stay and look after her because if I don't do that, I know that they all gone to church. Anything could happen to her. So it, it's, it's that worry, you know. So um, uh, there's just this anger, you know. There's this war against women uh, that we don't understand. So we are trying to work with others to try and communicate to the young men and understand what is really happening. She was a legend. She was a traditional healer who took her work seriously. She was just a lovely, loving person. Rest in peace, my friend. My name is Randall Gingrich. I'm the executive director of Tierra Nativa. Um, we're an organization based in Chihuahua, Mexico, uh, dedicated to providing uh, technical, legal support and financial support to endangered uh, indigenous communities in the Sierra Madre in Mexico. Isidro Baldonegro was a, a leader of the community of Colores de la Virgen. Um, a Tarahumara community located in far southwestern Chihuahua in Mexico who had worked to help stop logging um, in his community since at least 1986. Isidro's father had been assassinated uh, over the same issues, over logging and land issues. From 1986 through 1994 there were approximately 36 murders in this tiny community of about 800 people. In Mexico, in Mexico, there are more than 60 different indigenous ethnicities, and many of them suffer the same problems. Our territories are not recognized. Logging companies invade our lands wherever they like, and those involved in illegal activities control our lives. Controlan nuestras vidas. 
in 2002, the logging accelerated and um, we'd filed claims in court by then. And as the logging trucks descended, initially five Tarahumara women, they were soon joined by about 60 people from the community, including mostly elders and children. And, uh, and uh, they blockaded the logging trucks, which is uh, quite a courageous act. In the meantime, Isidro went into the forest with about 20 young men and convinced the loggers in the forest that had the chainsaws to, to stop logging. They you know, convinced them that the, you know, the, the logging was now suspended, even though they had no papers. And in response to that, the caciques were furious because you know, their they were just pocketing all the logging profits, which should have gone into the hands of the entire community. And um, they sent the uh, local sheriff uh, the local police into arrest Isidro and another young man and they took him into prison and put a gun in their hands, took photos and charged them with a 15 year mandatory sentence for po illegal possession of arms and that that arrest is what brought international attention to Isidro Baldenegro January 15th of 2017 he got shot in the back five times, he died a few hours later and uh and left two small children and his wife. Para nosotros, los Tarahumaras, todos los cerros son sagrados. For us, the Tarahumaras, all of the hills are sacred. Because the Oriwame, the healers, conduct their ceremonies there to cure illnesses. All of the forest, the sky, the sun, the stars, the moon, we see as living beings with souls just like us. That is why we say that without the forest, we, Tarahumaras, will die. Isidro Baldenegro, because of his fame from the, uh, winning the Goldman Prize, has become a symbol uh, throughout Mexico, and maybe Latin America, of, in, of indigenous resistance. In his community, he's more one of many. He was part of the community, and I think that's equally important to recognize. It's not Isidro's battle. He wasn't the leader. He was one of uh, a core of about 50 or 70 Tarahumara who never gave up, and there's only about half of them left. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Making Contact. This week, we're hearing the voices and stories of some of the lesser-known social justice leaders who passed away in 2017. If you're interested in learning more about these people, or to hear other shows in our archives, please visit radioproject.org. I'm Anu Natarajan, former vice mayor of the city of Fremont, which is in the Bay Area in California. I grew up in Bangalore in India, and I remember one of my 
friends from kindergarten through to seventh grade and then in junior college um, was Gauri Lankesh. When we were in 11th and 12th grade, we saw Gauri coming into her own, be becoming this really independent uh, person um, who shunned anything that was traditional. I mean, when you ask someone why you did that, it was simply because it was the way it was always done. And Gauri and her friends really started to question some of these. When you say empower India, whose empowerment are you talking about? In my view, it must be the empowerment of the Muslims, backward classes, and the Dalits of our country. We aspire for a peaceful and secular society and for the welfare and development of our state. Once her father passed away, she took on the mantle at the family-owned publication, uh, Lankesh Patrika, which was one of those widely read publications in the local language, Kannada. She took on a really powerful voice, fearlessly attacking some of the things that she thought were wrong. So she would pick up causes that nobody else would touch. I mean, gay rights in India is a battle, very rarely spoken about. And so she decided she wanted to highlight that. And she was particularly alarmed by the religious overtones of the political parties in power and um, openly was critical of that. There was no organization in India which was uniting or teaching about the Muslims about their rights as citizens of this country. To that extent, the PFI has managed to sort of overcome the factionalism within the community and try to bring them all together on a platform where Muslims, where the Muslims, you know, were marginalized from the mainstream. I think one of the things that a lot of, especially women her age, looked up to her was because of how brave she was, how unafraid she was um, in pursuing some of these uh, issues of social justice, justice for what she believed was this really unfair caste system, um, and took on this role of pushing for women's rights by modeling herself in achieving that. In a lot of these instances, I mean, she was probably the only woman at the table when these discussions happened. And um, she made sure that she was there and she was a voice uh, for a lot of the people that didn't have a voice at the table. Uh, it's really unfortunate that the state government has not yet arrested uh, Raghaveshwara Swami of Ramachandra Puramata, considering that he is facing charges of uh, molesting a woman and um, raping her continuously for two, three years. And uh, we would like to believe that the land is the same in this, uh, laws in this, in this land are the same for everyone, whether it's a president or a common man or for a matadisha. I think a lot more people have woken up to the fact that Gauri's murder, which was very similar to a few other journalists, raises questions about why, who did it. And nobody knows three months after her death who caused it, what happened. And I think, I mean, looking back on some of the Facebook and social media commentary, several people around her told her that, that she was really risking her life. She also has mentioned several times on Twitter that she'd got death threats. Anytime you question something and you do it as openly and with the backing of a huge fan club, 
is certainly a threat and she was seen as a threat not only because she went deep into the issues and made sure that she surfaced all of the hidden agendas but was was bold enough to attack some of the people in power and kept it honest My name is Carl Weitzler. I live in central Kentucky, and I am the current president of the Committee of 10,000. Corey Dubin first was my blood brother. I consider anyone who has hemophilia to be one of my blood brothers or my blood sisters. And first, he was a blood brother with hemophilia. Unfortunately, he and I both contracted HIV and HCV through our clotting medicine. And Corey was an early member of the Committee of 10,000. We represent the 10,000 people with hemophilia that were infected with HIV, AIDS, and or hepatitis C from contaminated blood in the 1980s. We took the hit of the blood supply. We lost 50% of the population. There's 20,000 persons with hemophilia in the nation at that time, and there were 10 left, and there's only 1,400 left of that 10,000. I'm one of them. Corey understood that the manufacturers that were making our, our blood clotting products were using high titer plasma or plasma that was um, definitely known infected because they were using it to make vaccines. During the um, uh, early to mid 80s, uh, Corey was very much a active loud voice saying that the hemophilia community uh, was proof that HIV was bloodborne. So here we are faced with a very difficult situation. People are getting sick. There's absolute despondency in the community. And at every turn, government is choosing the least aggressive response, all of government. The administration, Secretary Heckler and Mr. Reagan, were hostile towards AIDS, period, at that time and there was a hostility towards all of us. We were all lumped together. Corey was a part of the Ricky Ray Law. Ricky Ray Law was named after one of our young blood brothers who lived down in Florida, who was burned out of his home by some of his neighbors that didn't want him attending public school with their children. And um, the Ricky Ray Law was actually supposed to be compassionate care for those in the um, bleeding disorder community that contracted HIV from the blood products because the FDA let us down and let it through. While HIV AIDS devastated the community, destroyed families and killed many people, it's the result, not the story. The real story and the real policy rub where this really meets the road is hepatitis was allowed, and I want to underline the word allowed, to exist in the American blood supply unaddressed for four decades. Corey was very active for those with bleeding disorders and HIV and HCV, but he also did um, a lot of other work with the Native American community and um, the Latin American countries. He uh, also did a radio show. So the man was very diverse. Two minutes after 7 o'clock, you're in tune with KCSB FM Santa Barbara, 91.9 megahertz in the city of Santa Barbara. 
Tonight we bring you more on Operation Condor and the resistance and destruction and new generation of resistance to the dark military dictatorships of Latin America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The destruction of a generation of Latin American trade unionists, activists, political figures, diplomats, First Nations, indigenous activists across the board. Stay with us. It's the Latin American Journal. There are times that nobody else is going to look out for your community but yourself and the community themselves. And that is what Corey taught, is to make sure that you stand up for what is right and not let outside entities put you into a bind. We have to be educated and we have to make sure that our blood supply stays safe. My name is Yusra Sabir. Uh, I identify myself as a feminist and a blogger. Uh, I work with uh, several um, civil society organizations based in Sudan. Fatima Ahmed Ibrahim is one of the like, uh, pioneer women activists in Sudan. She was part of the anti-colonial movement back in the 1940s when she was still a student um, at high school and uh, she did a lot of activism around women rights and women issues. Sudan among one of the countries have high maternal mortality rate so our program also involves trying to enhance the reproductive health status of women, training the midwives, uh, giving them better tools for uh, doing their work and raising their awareness also to be part of the solution to ban the FGM and to uh, ban the early marriage early back in the 20th century. She founded with um, some of the women activists in Sudan, uh, the Sudanese Women Union. Also, she was the first woman to be elected to the parliament back in 1965, not only in Sudan, but in MENA region and in Africa. And she was subjected, of course, to a lot of uh, harassment and uh, imprisonment, house imprisonment for two years after her husband was executed to death in um, 1971. Activists, they had to flee the country for their lives, including Fatma Ibrahim herself. I think she left a legacy um, that uh, women can stand uh, against uh, any ruling authority and can um, uh, like pay a huge price for that. And they can still uh, continue fighting, and uh, not only for women, but for the whole society. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to filmmaker David Hoffman. 
Our list of fallen heroes we wanted to honor was long, and we had to make some tough choices to put this show together. If there's an important activist or organizer you know of who passed away in 2017, let us know on our Making Contact Facebook page. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. RJ Lazada, Marie Chia, Anita Johnson, and Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. And Vera Tykulsker is our development associate. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We leave you now with the words of someone else who passed away this year, co-founder and longtime leader of the American Indian Movement, Dennis Banks. I was sitting in prison, looking at this whole movement, the civil rights and the anti-war movement passing us by. And I wanted to get out so bad to, to, to be part of this movement that was going on. There was a new feeling out there of of a different kind of patriotism, patriotism to human rights, patriotism to, to life instead of death. I wanted to be part of it. Now here we were, we're going back to, the, to that same police department that, that arrested us, and we were demanding action. And it felt good to finally sense there was power in, in unity. There was power in numbers. And I felt good.